0: This evening, for our Scripture reading, we turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. <clears throat> the first five verses are the text for the sermon. I'm not going to read those verses again, so pay a special attention to the first five. high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambries withstood Moses, So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, Which persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child... good works. We read that far in God's Holy Word. It is, beloved people of God, with a firm belief that what the Apostle ends this chapter with about Holy Scripture, namely that all Scripture is given by inspiration, and therefore is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that we consider the text found in this same chapter this evening. I preach on this text to you this evening not because I have any illusions that this text says everything that needs to be said about the subject of abuse. Whether it be sexual abuse, spousal abuse, spiritual abuse, and other abuse. There is way, way more that needs to be said, and hopefully will be said, even from myself in the future. But we begin here With this text, because it lays an important foundation that we need to hear. The text describes a time, beloved, in the church of extreme and immediate danger danger to the spiritual well being and souls of the members of the church it calls this time the last days we must understand that properly on the one hand the last days here and elsewhere in many places doesn't refer simply to a few days shortly before our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven but to the entire New Testament period, those are the last days compared to the beginning of the days in the Old Testament. And yet, and that's evident, by the way, by the fact that the apostle here is speaking to an active minister, Timothy, and telling him what he must teach the people and what he himself will encounter in his own ministry as is evident when he instructs Timothy and the church and ministers he is pastoring to turn away from what's being described here. So obviously something that appeared even in apostolic times. On the other hand, the term in the last days always indicates that the nearer our Lord's return, the more intense is The thing being described that we may see an intensity in the danger, in the immediacy of the danger and the extremity of the danger that is being described here. What's being described here is called perilous. There are perilous times, that is, times of peril. And peril is a particular word that, as I said, refers to immediate and very extreme danger. In fact, it's used only one other time in Scripture. And that other time is when it describes two men who were overtaken by devils, whom Scripture goes on to describe as being exceedingly fierce. So fierce that no man dared pass by the country that they lived and we read about them so perilous were these men that the villagers chained them with fetters and iron chains and they broke them now that's the word that's used to describe the times of the text in other words The word is used exclusively and graphically here for a reason. To emphasize the extremity and the immediacy of the danger. This is not a word that we use when there's a low risk of some hurt or harm or something that's far, far off, maybe of low possibility. This is not a word that you use when someone is... Uh let's say has the flu or a slight condition no this is the word you use when their heart has stopped and CPR is being performed or they're in the ICU on a ventilator this is not a word that you use when someone was bit by a dog but the word you use when they've been bit by a rattlesnake peril is the word you use not when you're sitting in Lake Michigan with a small, tiny leak in your boat, but when you're sitting in the ocean during the middle of a hurricane, then you send out an SOS of great peril. The peril that is found here is the description of certain men. Men who I am, this evening, going to label as abusers I use the term man or the male term not because what's being described here is limited to males or am I saying that all abusers are male it's often the case because abuse may be defined as the misuse or the improper use of a power and authority that is given in order to exploit, hurt, harm, or take from someone else. And males are often more frequently guilty of this sin by virtue of their natural strength over the woman. But abuse also is abuse of office, abuse of position, abuse of place, abuse of gifts used to exploit, hurt, or take from others so we're going to use the term him now admittedly the apostle here is not setting forth characteristics or marks limited to an abuser he's not doing that that should be evident simply from the fact that if you know abusers or you've studied abuse you will discover that not all of these marks apply to every individual, even an abuser. For example, you have even disobedient to parents or truce breakers might not apply to all abusers. It's also evident from the example he gives of some of them. He goes on in verse 6 to say, of some of these, or of this sort, of this kind of person... There are those who, and he describes their behavior, and that behavior is not abuse. Men who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. Goes on to describe them as false teachers, like Jannies and Jambres who withstood Moses in the church. Reprobate of corrupt mind. Nevertheless, the fact is that what is listed here is indeed the main what I call ingredients or you might say marks or you might say characteristics of those whom we call today abusers and one of the benefits of this text is it links all sorts of abuse It links sexual abuse and the marks of that and spousal abuse and the kind of person that commits that as well as the spiritual abuser, the elder, or the pastor who abuses the flock, you will find that this description applies to all that. We're going to concentrate this evening especially on the peril that this is. And that's being done over against what is often our own attitude and an attitude common even among us. Where we look at these sins and we'd say to themselves, Oh oh well, that's to be expected. This is the way it is in the church. Or we hear about abuse and we say, That's not so bad. Get over it. Move on. Or maybe this is just something that's made up. Maybe this is just part of the Me Too movement. Or the result of way too many books and an obsession on these things. No, no, no. This text dispels all of that. And I hope to point that out as we go through the sermon. In fact, you may see the three points of the sermon as three points of peril. The three points to my sermon on the peril of abusers in the church are lovers of self. There's peril in that. A form of godliness, there's peril in that. And then turning away, peril in that too. The first description of the men whom I call abusers in this text is that they are lovers of their own selves. In the Greek it's one word, literally a self-lover, a lover of self. And that word is first for a reason. It's first, and thus made a main point of my sermon, not because it's, one of many vices just happens to be first out of all of these but the idea is this is the first and primary mark of the individual being described here and thus also the first and primary mark of every single abuser every single abuser of any type whether he be a bully at school or a pedophile is a self-lover. If you read, and you ought to read on this subject, you ought to read extensively. Every single book, every single expert takes note of it. Now, you might find it under a different word. The word narcissist. That's the more psychologically appropriate term in our day, more common term. The biblical term is a self lover. And actually is a more accurate and descriptive term. It's also more, much more helpful in understanding what's going on, why these sins, and what's the connection to all the rest. That term indicates that the problem and the seriousness of the problem is that there is a defect or corruption in the heart or soul of the abuser. The heart is where you love someone. That's where the Bible always locates love. In the heart. And now by the heart, Scripture has in mind the soul, including the mind often associated with that. Now what that indicates to us is abuse is not simply a matter of a moment. A matter of one or two times. A matter of lust or something that someone just slips into. Abuse is a matter of love. That is, it's a matter of the will. Just like you do things you love to do. You engage in sports because you love them. You watch certain entertainment because you love it. So also the abuser engages in his abuse because he loves it. And he loves it because he is a lover of self. It's also a matter of the mind. Being a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the mind. In other words, there may be impulses and lusts involved. Make no mistake. But the life of abuse is a cold, calculated life. It is a life of determination. It is a life of forethought. It is a lifestyle. It is determined by the mind and by the will of the heart of the abuser. And that because he's a self-lover. That means, in the second place, that the abuser is an idolater. Being a lover of self, he loves himself as God. That's evident from the very word that follows self-love in the KJV, covetous. Now Ephesians 5 says that the covetous man is an idolater. It gets at the heart of the issue. We may look at covetousness and we say, well, there's a heart problem there. The man just loves things. And that's literally the word here, by the way. Lover of things, lover of riches, lover of Property, it uses that same word, love. What's the connection? The connection is that love is essentially an act of service, even with regard to God, an act of worship. But an act of service, if you look at the law, the summary of the law, both with regard to God and the neighbor, it's love the Lord and serve Him. The Scriptures even say in the book of Galatians, By love, serve your neighbor. So love is service. So the abuser worships and serves himself. And the idea is serves only himself. Everything he wills, everything he desires, everything he does, everything he acts on, revolves around himself, centers on himself, is due to love of himself because he serves and worships himself and no other. That means that the abuser, because he is a self-lover, essentially corrupts and perverts God's will for the human person. And God's will for human relationships and His will with our relationship to Him. You may see that self-love essentially makes man a beast. Someone who is really no different than the creatures. He is not what God intends or wills man to be in all of his relationships. He's like a beast who's only interested in self-preservation and self-advancement. Love is to desire the highest good for someone else and to give of oneself in order to receive that. The abuser changes that. He loves only himself and serves only himself. And so he uses all others to take from, not give to, Not take what God gave Him and give to them, but to take from them unto Himself. And that reversal of God's will, to love God and love the neighbor, that's God's will for us as human beings. That perversion, that corruption, that twisting of that is emphasized in the text. When it begins, He's a self-lover. Then says immediately he's a lover of riches. He's covetous. Goes on at the very end to describe him as a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. One of the words even means he's a non-lover of those that are good. That word despise is literally a non-lover. So this text is aimed right at the heart of a certain individual. A self-lover. A self-lover. And thus, an idolater and a man who has completely perverted and corrupted God's will for him and for his neighbor. That helps explain the relationship of that first thing to all the other sins that follow. Self love is the source of all of them, and in one way or another, they do mark. They are characteristics of the abuser in all types. I'll try to lay that out in some way. Try to be brief. When you look at that list, you will discover that you could basically divide it up into two parts. And those two parts are also two characteristics of the abuser. The first has to do with his attitude toward others and toward things. There's in that list those. I already talked about covetousness, so we'll, we'll skip that. But the point of these descriptors is to show that the abuser looks at everything outside of himself as property, as something to take, something to acquire, something to use for his own personal gratification and pleasure. So a word we have is unthankful. He's unthankful. If you know anything about spousal abuse, you know the spousal abuser is unthankful. He is absolutely unthankful about his wife. She can have the cleanest house. He will find something to nitpick to hold her down, to control her. More on that in a bit. He is not at all thankful that she is his wife. He is not at all thankful about her expending her energy and her time and her care and her concern on him. As a husband, he never says thanks. Why? because he simply looks at her as property as her doing her duty as a sort of quasi slave never satisfied never pleased and remember that carries over of course to god also he's unholy and we may add blasphemer here unholy and a blasphemer the idea of that is pretty graphic the idea of being unholy is that a person, well, let's put it this way, there's nothing that's too personal or too sacred for this individual to defile or to take for himself. Holiness is that something's reserved. It's 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 not yours. It's not common. It's not profane. It belongs to God or it belongs to that individual. The abuser never sees things that way. There's no such thing as personal sexuality. There's no such thing as privacy or privates. There's no such thing as your own personal space or your or your own even life and activity. In a spousal situation or even in a child's sexual abuse. All is considered mine. It's unholiness and unblasphemy. You may say how even blasphemy comes into that, because when you do that, you're defiling. You're defiling that which God has given to another. That which is reserved for another or reserved to God. And in doing that, you drag God's own name into the ground as well as others. That's the idea of blasphemy even here. Without natural affection. The idea here is that the individual, the abuser, is without any empathy. He has no empathy without natural affection, even that that you might even attribute to the beasts. The cries of the spouse who's been berated and belittled, demeaned by his words and his behavior don't affect or touch him. He can demand the most outrageous, wicked things of his wife. And her pleas and her cries mean nothing the look on a child's face as he rapes her does not affect his heart and soul. There is not even natural affection. And I could go on. Now there's a set of second things that are brought out. And you may see these as another thing that marks an abuser. And that is control. These are sins of control. Now, you have to understand what I mean. The abuser knows who he is. He knows whom he serves. And as we're going to see, has a form of godliness. So there's all sorts of mechanisms, all sorts of things that he does to manipulate, to change, to set forth a narrative, an image of himself, what he wants others to see, and what he wants to hide from others. So you must see even when we read that He's proud, a boaster, heady, high-minded. The idea is there. It's not just simply describing His self-love for Himself, but how He wants others to see Him. That is, He is these things, but the idea is that He Himself views Himself and thus wants others to see Him as superior, as better, as more privileged, as smarter, as more important. And therefore, everyone else as stupid and ignorant, not so knowledgeable, not so powerful. And that's a way he uses to control and manipulate, to make others serve him. You may even see disobedient to parents. Originally I, I was going to dismiss that until I started to think about it a little bit. But abuse doesn't start in adulthood. A lot of times, the abuser is someone who is an abuser because he's a self-lover already in childhood. This is the bully on the school playground. Not unusual for the bully. Or even the pervert. There's perverts already as little kids. You would expect them then to be disobedient to parents. But remember, parents always is about all authority. You see, you say, Well, what does that have to do? Well again, understand how he views things. The child that he molests doesn't belong to the parents, belongs to him. The school where he works doesn't belong to the parents, belongs to him. When the elders come and speak and talk, he views them as idiots and stupid, don't really understand who he is and what he's about. Following that, breaker—that That is, an individual who's reluctant to enter into a commitment, or if he does, easily breaks it. Oh yes, he may be the husband who, abusing his wife, is always screaming that she's one with him, reminding her that she's married to him, is particularly upset if she has to leave because of his abuse. But the fact of the matter, he's the truce breaker. He's the one who's violated the marriage vows. He's the one who has put her away. Easily will be remarried. The man who easily forgets his vow and breaks his vow to submit to church government when the law of the elders lays its finger on him. Says, we're going to make this public. We're going to announce what you have done in your life. Says, I'm out of here. Truth breaker. Fierce and false accuser. The idea is, individual that will say and do anything to protect the mask of hypocrisy and lies surrounding himself. will tell a story, a narrative, anything to hide what he's doing to protect himself. He will hurl the most savage words at his loving wife. He will call individuals the most awful names. And when a victim reports him, has no problem slandering the person that he has violated. And do so with a straight face. Do so even violently, pounding the table, insisting, you must believe me. Now there's peril in that. First of all, the abuser himself is in peril. The abuser has a death sentence over his head like the individual with a defective heart. The curse of God is upon the lover of self. The curse of God of death, physical death, and of eternal death, body and soul, is on the abuser. Be not deceived. No unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, Or any such thing and you could add to that description abuser shall inherit the kingdom of God Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 87 and Ephesians 5 that I quoted earlier says because of these things comes the wrath of God like the person with heart disease The abuser requires a heart transplant. There's absolutely no hope that the abuser will stop his abuse, will change, will change his behavior, will reform in any way unless his heart is ripped out and replaced with another. Unless there is that radical of a change. And I will remind you, That only God can perform such surgery. The entire church is in peril. You understand, maybe your reaction was with mine. You read through that list and you go, oh, those are people out there. Or if we said, I know people like that, but I also have some of these sins in me. What's the peril? What's, what's the issue? You, you understand that if a person loves themselves, they don't love anybody else. They're not capable of that. They hate, in fact, everybody else. There's no middle ground here. What that means is, there is no one safe from their abuse. They hate everyone. It's not just that they will pour out their hatred or show their self-love on some. Now, they are predators and have a way of looking for the vulnerable and attacking the vulnerable and hurting the vulnerable. But the fact is, really, no one's safe in one way or another in the classroom, on the playground, in the home, in the school, and in the church itself. The church is in peril because if the church fails to deal properly with the abuser or allows it to continue or does not expose it, then the church itself is guilty and responsible for the effects and judgment of God upon that abuse. may expect, too, there's peril in the church because if the church does expose the sin and deal with the sins, then it will become the object of abuse too, the object of slander and the fierceness of the abuser protecting himself. But especially the victims of the abuse, the person who is the actual object of that self loving, self serving idolater, a child, a spouse a church member if it's a child it is especially perilous and here we have to admit we do not understand or know what we ought to I can only give a little description and in a little comparison I want I want you to think of two trees one a tiny little sapling a year old Two years old, and then a giant oak tree, a mature, bark-covered, solid oak. You can kill or severely damage that little sapling with just your fingernail. It would take an axe and a chainsaw to wound and severely hurt that oak tree. That's the comparison I'm trying to get through to you with regard to the peril of a child and what's done. Now there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is a child is developing and a child especially learns abstract concepts like love and trust through relationships. They don't learn them from the Bible. They don't learn them simply from memorizing verses. They learn them through actual experience. And now imagine what they've learned about love and trusting authority. When a teacher, when a teacher rapes them repeatedly, what have they learned about the love? What have they learned about even the love of God? And you might have some idea of the peril. We can look at that and say, well, they've been damaged, they've been hurt. But we look at that through the eyes of an adult and then even there we show our ignorance. Ask a rape, a mature rape victim about the wounds and the hurt that are caused. Now you can multiply that an untold number of times with regard to a child. But even more importantly, remember that children develop their relationship and learn about their relationship to God through their relationships of love and trust with others. And imagine now how that has been hurt. How does a child who's been molested by a grandparent or a parent, and that has happened in our churches, what does that child think about God as Father? The wife too. We can look at a wife, easily say, well, just... Deal with it. Just live with it. Go live with your husband. Go to marriage counseling. Just put up with it. What ignorance. What foolishness. What lack of understanding that is. You should listen sometime to what's been done to a spouse by an abusive husband. The things he's done. The things he said the ways he's humiliated and degraded and demeaned. She is in peril. The peril even of desiring a new husband, of leaving, forsaking the church. And imagine now if the church has closed its ears to her pleas and she leaves the church. I could go on, but I must continue with the sermon about another point of abusers, and that is, When this occurs in the church, which is what we're talking about, they have a form of godliness. The apostle makes a whole separate point of that. What does that mean? Well, number one, it's proof that we're talking about individuals and about things that occur in the church. Not out there in the world. In the church. So what is godliness? Well, godliness refers to behavior and piety and reverence and respect in the manner that's typical, the form, the manner that's typical for a lover of God, a worshiper of God, one who serves God. In other words, the abuser is able to mimic that, put on the form of that, to appear outwardly as one who truly loves God and worships God who has love and respect for their fellow church member. They may regularly attend church. They may obey parents for a time. They may listen to the sermon. They may show up at Bible study and contribute. They may be quite knowledgeable about the Word of God and the creeds, be able to quote them. They may be able to show a certain grace and love and kindness to others, maybe even very generous with their money, And when it says, a form of godliness, do not think to yourself, well, an easily detected form. We're talking about individuals here now where if you put them before me, I can tell who they are. No, no, no. We're talking about a highly developed form of godliness. How highly developed? Well, this highly developed. A form of godliness such that experienced school board members will hire them as teachers. Such a highly developed form of godliness that an abuser can make his way all the way through seminary, fooling all the professors, and be installed into the ministry of the gospel. Such a highly developed form of godliness that they may be a teacher or a minister for decades. Such a highly developed form of godliness that a godly, wonderful young woman will date and want to marry the abuser and the parents will give their blessing upon it. Such a form of godliness that parents will allow their children to babysit by them or stay at their house. They may preach. They may teach, and they may confess the truth of God. They may wax very eloquent about God's unconditional love. Now if you look at that, because it's only a form, you will discover what they mean by unconditional love. is God is the one who so loves us that He overlooks and really doesn't care about our sins. We can live in them all of our life. Perhaps all we have to do is shed some tears and say we're sorry and we're good with God. Or we can make up for the abuse and the wickedness that we live by a couple of good deeds. That's their view in their heart. But they they talk a good talk. The husband that's a spousal abuser can tell you all the places in Scripture that teach headship and the submission of the wife and how she ought to be living herself. The man that abuses his children, his own children with his bully tactics can tell you all the texts about sparing the rod and spoiling the child, form of godliness such that they can spout church polity, know all the rules and behaviors of elders. Such a form of godliness that you won't want to believe what you yourself witness or what a victim might come forward and tell you has happened. That form of godliness. Perhaps you yourself have witnessed behavior that's a little disturbing, maybe creepy, a little off. But you look at the form of godliness and you say, it must be my imagination. Maybe that's just the way they are. They are a little different. They're a little more touchy-feely. They're a family that's just a little bit more rough With their language and their speech. Or when a victim comes forward and tells you what happened, you say to yourself, maybe you say it to them. Are you sure? Maybe you imagine this. Maybe it isn't really what you think it is. And if you're able to reflect back on those thoughts or what you said, you will discover that it's often because you were fooled by the form of godliness. And don't forget, this includes a form of repentance. Part of godliness is repentance. So you may expect the abuser, when he's caught, or when evidence is brought forward, there will be a whole series of predictable behaviors that follow. Books have been written on it. You may expect tears. You may expect sorrow. You may expect a certain form of humility. Even contrition. There will be even admission of things that cannot be denied, but you will not have repentance. Only the form of it. Only a form. Why? Because the heart has not been changed. They are still a lover of self. And that's evident because they have the same attitude toward people and things. An unholy, unthankful, superior attitude. It will be evident in one way or another. They will show that especially toward victims who they have no problem slandering and gossiping about, trying to make them the people who are the bad ones here. And only a form, because as the Apostle says, they deny the power thereof. What is that power? Well, it's the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the power of His Holy Spirit. And I don't have time, unfortunately, to explain and show all the ways that that's done. But often it's simply this way. I am who I am, and I can't change. This is what I am. God can't really expect this of me. This is contrary to God's unconditional love. God doesn't require such things. Those would be conditions to salvation. You should accept my tears and my contrition as true repentance. And I could go on and on. And don't forget, that's not just when caught, but that's how they live their life. It's saying that when you... You have to understand what's going on. An abuser living in the church, sitting at the Lord's table, sitting under the preaching, reading the Scriptures, putting on a good show, but habitually sodomizes little children. Do you understand what a denial of the power of godliness that that is? And all done under the guise of God's forgiveness. Do you understand now the peril and the danger that puts the church in? Oh, there's peril to the church here in this having a form of godliness but benign power thereof. And that is it makes them hard to spot. We're easily fooled. It's easy to have happen that this can be allowed to continue to the further great hurt and damage of members and children it's what causes us to minimize the sin or to justify the sin so that it even becomes sort of a norm that's the way it is in the church we must expect these things aren't you like that a little bit too do you understand the peril that the church is in if that sets in what it means is we accept the form of godliness as godliness We ourselves then pervert the will of God for us. We ourselves turn religion not from from being a matter of the heart to simply a matter of outward show and behavior. Then we're those who could just say, the people of God are we, the people of God are we, and even become a little offended and a little upset when God comes along and says, Do you know what you really are? Do you know what's really going on? Do you really know what depravity is? Do you know what it's really like to have a form of godliness and deny the power of? Well, here it is. That's peril to the church. Think about the peril to the victims. I've described that somewhat. But talk to victims if you know them. If you don't, let me tell you. Ask them once. What hurts more, the abuse that they endured and have survived, or all the comments and the attitudes and the treatment and the behavior of the church and members of the church and even elders in the church, ministers in the church, because we've been fooled, or because we accept a form of godliness and the denial of the power thereof, or... Any other thing associated with it. Whether it be ignorance or deliberate, doesn't matter. What hurts more? What would hurt you more? From such, turn away. There's the remedy. There's the solution from God Himself. From such, turn away. Now you understand there's only two ways that can happen. One is it's turned away in the abuser himself. That God actually changes the heart. And if you ask, well, how does God do that? God uses means. And the means God uses is the sharpest possible rebuke you can imagine. You will not change the heart of an abuser by minimizing their sin, by coddling them, by saying, well, I I see a lot of good that you do, and I, I see you've fallen here a little bit. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. They have to be hit in the head with a sledgehammer that tells them exactly what they've done and the damage it caused. That's the only hope. That doesn't work. Discipline has to be applied. And that leads to the second way. They're turned away. They're removed from the church. They must be removed from the church. If there is no repentance, if there is no change of heart, The church may not accept anything less than that. Or the church remains in peril. Peril that you cannot imagine. What kind of peril? Well, God has left such churches that has ignored this or not dealt with it as it ought. God's judgment falls upon such a church. And God's judgment is that that church is consumed by this. If you don't think this causes problems in the church let me tell you as your pastor that I am convinced that the vast majority of my work and time has not been preparing sermons but giving pastoral advice and help to those suffering from abuse or the abuser themselves that's how bad it is that's the damage it causes do you understand that when a child is abused it is a lifelong pain and suffering trauma that is indescribable. And it returns. It comes back. It has to be dealt with. Elders in our churches right now, young ministers in our churches right now are being consumed with dealing with this. But it's not just our problem. It's our problem as a church. The Bible's word is turn away from it. Don't tolerate it. Don't ignore it. Don't overlook it. Don't minimize it. Don't justify it. Turn it away. Get rid of it. Let everyone know there is no place for the abuser in our church. In our churches. You will be exposed. Your name will be mentioned. You will be put out. Even if you, by God's grace, repent. We will rejoice. and We'll be exceeding glad because there you really would see the power of God's grace too. But there still will be consequences. There has to be. That sin being so thoroughly ingrained and in part of us, that's part of depravity, That, beloved, is only a beginning of the Word of God about this. And that I bring to you tonight, I have gone over, so I will end. I hope and pray there will be more. I hope and pray that this Word is received by you and that we ourselves can deal with this and talk about this and bring it before the Lord in prayer. And why? Because there is real peril here. And there is only one hope. There is only one solution. There is only one healing, one balm, one wisdom. And that is from our God, from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's make sure we go to Him and trust in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we pray, that this evening we may have done some introspection, some self-examination as members and as a church, that Thy Word may have pierced through to our own soul so that we find repentance in our own heart, repentance of our own self-love, so that we are not comfortable and realize what it leads to what the end of it is, the peril of it, that we are not comfortable with sin. We rebuke sin. We despise sin. We sorrow over sin. And even turn away from it when it continues and is maintained impenitently. O Lord, our God, forgive us our own sins, whatever they may be in regard to this great, Trouble and affliction in the churches. Give us strength, give us grace, especially, O oh Lord, bring healing. Healing to spouses, children, adults, and others who have been abused, hurt, and wounded, severely tried and afflicted. And may the church be not a place where such abuse occurs, but a place of refuge, a place of help, a place of comfort and guidance. And we pray that thou wilt give us these things and make us these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.